You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of the exorcism of Michael Taylor. is one of those things that seems monumental and unchanging. We practice these traditions as if they're outside of time, practices that came before us and will last much longer than our own lives. But traditions are constantly developing, as well as beliefs. From the offset, Christianity had so many interpretations, from early Gnostic belief to the Great Schisms in the 11th century and the Reformation. Trends in theology change, just like everything else. Throughout the 2,000 years of history, there has always been an element of believers who are focused on the more metaphysical side of that religious tradition. Charismatic Christianity is definitely one of those traditions within the wider Christian belief system. Miracles, faith healing, prophecy, and speaking in tongues are all common. God and the Holy Spirit are present in everyday lives, and conversely, there is a real threat of true evil, Satan, and hell. In the north of England, in West Yorkshire, lies the small town of Ossish. It's like many mining towns in the area, but also with a history of a well-established textile industry. It is a bit different, though. At one point in the 19th century, Osset had become a spa town, a place for the rich to come to take curative waters, and it was also known as a centre of non-conformist religious practice, and the idea of being resolute and independent when it came to its spiritual matters was one that continued in the area into modern times. Michael and Christine Taylor had lived in Osset all their lives. In 1974, at age 31 and 29 respectively, they were young but had a large family. They had five boys between the ages of 6 and 12. They were known as a polite and quiet and even a bit shy couple. It was a happy household. Michael and Christine were very much in love, even so many years into their marriage, and things were good, if not a little tight financially. Michael was known to tease his wife about a strange-looking fluffy dog she owned, which she doted on. He'd say to her that she loved the dog more than him, and they'd laugh. Michael Taylor had left school at 15 and had worked first as a butcher and then as a farm labourer, operating agricultural machinery. However, by age 30, Michael had suffered from a serious back injury. He tried to retrain and become a nursing assistant, but he found that he was unable to lift patients. Michael was a good dad and looked after the boys well, but did have difficulties finding work because he suffered from a bad back. By the summer of 1974, Michael had been out of work for a year, but had occasionally been helping to care for a disabled child. But he'd lost confidence due to the periods of unemployment, 
he suffered from bouts of depression and was subject to the occasional outbursts of frustration and anger. In September of 1974, a neighbour and friend of the Taylor family, Mrs. Barbara Wardman, invited Michael and Christine along to a meeting of the Gauber Christian Fellowship Movement. The Taylor's friends wanted to try and help Michael with the low moods, and Barbara in particular thought that Michael making new friends would be a good idea. To her, the religious meetings held in the neighbourhood seemed to be a good option. Barbara had been going to the meetings there for a few years and told the Taylors how lovely it was to have some hope amidst the troublesome times they were in. The Taylors had never been religious and had never been known to attend church services, but Michael and Christine liked and trusted their teacher friend and thought it would at least do them no harm, and so they drove the eight miles or so out to St. Thomas's Anglican Church near Barnsley. The church there had a new vicar. Peter Vincent, who had introduced a charismatic style of worship there, one quite unlike what you would usually expect from traditional Anglican worship. There was modern, evocative music and congregants fully participated in a sort of celebratory worship. Regulars there described themselves as born again, and speaking in tongues and faith healing were also common practices. A literal understanding of the biblical text was also adopted in the face of the more modern, philosophical leanings of the Church of England theological thought at the time. The evangelical bent of St. Thomas's and its surrounding parishes was apparent to all, and in fact Reverend Vincent displayed a number of religious magazines in the porch of St. Thomas's, relating to its unconventional spirituality, one of which was titled Exorcism. That said, it was reported by the Guardian newspaper that there was not much interest in the magazines for Sunday worshippers. It was quite clear that the community at St. Thomas's and the surrounding parishes had its focus on the saving of souls and the war between heaven and perdition. Evil was real, and it was a threat to even a regular person living in Yorkshire. The Reverend Vincent had written about exorcism in the parish newsletter and spoke out, as many members of the clergy did, about the release of the 1972 film The Exorcist. Vincent told his congregants that the movie was, quote, an exploitation of the gullible minds of the public, and many will get more than they bargained for. The one thing the film doesn't show is the truth about the church's work on exorcism. Exorcism is the casting out of evil spirits and Satan himself by the power and victory of Jesus, and when exorcism is carried out in the name and by the authority and the covenant of the blood of Jesus, the evil spirits must go. End quote. But this charismatic form of worship and Christianity took place outside of Sunday services too, and within the community itself. In fact, devotees were perhaps even more wholehearted and enthusiastic in these smaller groups. It was one of these groups that the Taylors were introduced to. Barbara had invited the couple to take part in a simple act of faith with her, the breaking of bread. This sharing of a communal meal is hugely significant, as it calls back to the very earliest rituals of Christianity, which not only marked out Christians as a distinct group, but mirrored the Last Supper. The Osset evangelical version of this breaking of bread involved passing around Ribena and crackers while praying together. The main fellowship group was made of 60 to 80 people, 
coming from the various denominations in the Wakefield area, not just the Anglican congregation. At some point, a smaller, more intimate group within the larger fellowship was formed. It may have started with a simple dinner or invitation to tea, but this smaller group was more fervent again than the larger fellowship. The meetings that Barbara had invited the Taylors to were led by Marie Robinson, a young lay preacher who was just 22 years old. Marie had trained as a teacher and had studied music during that time. She never took up a teaching position, though, and in 1974, she was working at the County Council's Planning and Transport Department in Wakefield. She was passionate, energetic, charismatic, and not only did she have a deep faith, she relished the chance of leadership in faith beyond the customary confines of women's roles in religious organisations. The tailors were welcomed to the fellowship and made to feel comfortable and wanted. It was more relaxed than Michael and Christine had expected. These were just normal people like them, gathered in a friend's home, and everyone was treated the same. There was no hierarchy, really, and no division between men and women. It was very communal and egalitarian, within and because of the understanding of the early churches of Christianity. All were allowed to contribute and join in with the meetings in the group, and they were happy, joyful occasions, not like the formal worship that was traditional in England. It was certainly social, and was just the thing that Barbara had been hoping to inject into the tailors' lives, along with developing a personal relationship with the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, of course. The meetings had a profound effect on the tailors, and they converted to Christianity. They attended the meetings regularly, and quickly even offered their own house as a meeting place for the group. Michael didn't want to go to the meetings without Christine, but with their five kids, it was hard for her to get time away from the house. And so, some meetings were arranged to take place in the tailors, to make it easier on. The little band of comrades drank coffee and ate sandwiches, and Marie Robinson played hymns on her guitar. She also administered communion, something that was certainly beyond her place in the church, as she wasn't ordained. But she was an unconventional religious leader in a non-conformist environment. No one batted an eye. She was charismatic and influential, and those who gathered around her truly and deeply believed in both the message of the teachings of Jesus Christ and in her. Michael was no exception to that influence. Within just a few weeks, he had fully immersed himself in his newfound born-again status. He even began speaking in tongues. Through all of that, the religious experience, the personal relationship with God, and the regular worship, Michael grew close with Marie Robinson. Even family friend Barbara, who had introduced the Taylors to the fellowship, began to notice the closeness between the two. During a gathering, Barbara had once walked in on Michael with Michael's arms propped on Marie's shoulders. It seemed to be an intimate gesture. Michael told Barbara that he loved Marie with a Christian love, agape, the kind of love God has for all his creations, unconditional and all-encompassing. But by the end of September, there had been a huge change in Michael. He had been overtaken by his newfound religious fervour, and now saw the temporal world around him in terms of the never-ending battle between heaven and hell for the immortal souls of all those around him. 
Michael was also telling people he'd begun to see the devil. Taylor and Marie had stayed up for an entire night making the sign of the cross, over and over, over one another, to keep them safe from unseen spiritual harm. During one of the fellowship meetings, Michael had attacked Reverend Vincent, thinking he posed a spiritual threat. Michael gave the clergyman a black eye, and he also kicked the vicar's black cat, saying this family pet was actually a reincarnation of Satan, and that it couldn't be in the house. On Sunday the 29th of September, a meeting was held at the Taylor's home, and other members of the group were also feeling as if they were filled with the Holy Spirit, that they were experiencing something truly significant, something transcendental. That night, Marie Robinson performed an exorcism in the Taylor's home. Mavis Smith, an older lady who often attended the fellowship meetings, had gotten upset. She was overcome by what was going on, and Marie noticed it, taking it as resistance to the presence of the Holy Spirit at the meetings, and that this was a sign that Mavis may have been host to evil spirits, trying to interfere with the worship. As Marie raised her hands and approached the older woman praying at her, Mavis began to panic. She didn't understand what the young preacher was doing, and reacted aggressively. Mavis yelled and tried to get Marie away from her. The encounter looked more like a tussle than some sort of religious rite, and this attempted exorcism wasn't the only dramatic turn in the meeting that evening. In hindsight, it would dim in comparison to events to come. As the fellowship meeting continued, the connection between Michael, Taylor, and Marie became clear once more. Christine had had enough of these goings-on between Marie and her husband. She stood and in front of the whole fellowship said so. Christine said that Michael and Marie needed to take a moment to themselves to correct the issue. So Michael and Marie went upstairs in the Taylor home. Michael moved towards Marie as if to kiss her and Marie rebuffed him, reminding Michael that he loved Christine. When the two were back before the group, Michael announced that the issue between the two was resolved and that a miracle had happened. He said that God had taken away their desire for one another. Just then, Marie looked at Michael. That wasn't quite what had happened, and her dubiousness must have shown in her face, because at that moment, Michael lost it. He began screaming and started slapping Marie across the face, and then let totally loose and attacked the young woman, screaming nonsense at her. Christine and the rest of the group had a hard time pulling Michael off Marie, but they did manage it in the end. According to an account written by Mark Heal in his book, The Sussex Devils, Marie later recalled that she was in real fear for her life during that attack. Taylor told other members of the group that it had appeared to him in that moment that both he and Marie were naked before one another and that Marie had seduced him in the presence of his wife. The following day, Marie called to the Taylor house, but Christine sent her away saying, quote, I have got to get you and Michael apart, end quote. Christine had even told her friend Barbara that she was scared to leave the two alone together in case they might injure one another. She made the decision that it would be best for the time being for Michael and herself 
to disengage somewhat from the prayer group. They'd gotten all swept up in it, and it not only seemed to be impinging on her relationship with her husband, Michael seemed to be very affected by the whole thing, especially after the moment he basically confessed his attraction to the young lay preacher and she rejected him in front of the entire group. Something seemed to have come undone in her husband at that point, and they needed time away. But Christine's plan was interrupted. Word got back to Reverend Peter Vincent and other evangelical members of clergy in the area. Reverend Vincent and his wife Sally asked the Taylors to come over to discuss the problems that the couple were having, particularly Michael's religious upheaval. Christine agreed and they headed to the vicarage. The couple described to the Reverend and his wife what was going on and how it had all started with the fight between Michael and Marie. Sally seemed sympathetic. Perhaps she too was aware of the influence that the 22-year-old charismatic had on people. Marie was given the blame for what was going on with Michael, and it was concluded that perhaps it was through her that Michael had come under the power of some sort of demon or demons. The clergy, the professionals, when it came to issues of the soul, would monitor the situation, they said, and hopefully, with their prayers and advice, Michael would improve. Michael continued to act oddly, though, and in fact got worse. Neither of the tailors were sleeping because Michael seemed to have some sort of new fixation with the moon. During the day, he'd kneel outside the house, shouting nonsense. He saw evil and the devil in the most innocuous of things, and he could no longer bear the sight of religious symbols. He was having some sort of break, and Christine was reaching the end of her tether. She was at a loss as to what to do. On the 3rd of October, Marie called by the Taylor house. She spoke with Michael. Michael told her that there were 12 tests coming, which they would have to face. Marie thought that these tests were likely spiritual or emotional tests, and described them this way when she was questioned later. Then both she and Michael spoke in tongues, but Michael became agitated and began screaming and thrashing about, and seemed to think that the devil was coming and was going to harm his family. She would later say that there was no indication that Michael thought that this impending evil had anything to do with his wife, Christine. On the 5th of October, 1974, the clergy decided to take action. Reverend Vincent called the tailors to his house, where he was joined by his wife, Sally, as well as the Reverend Raymond Smith, a Methodist preacher, and his wife, Peggy, and Donald James, a Methodist lay preacher. The obvious choice of contacting a doctor for Michael was dismissed out of hand. Rather, the clergyman thought that they knew exactly what Michael's problem was and how to handle it. He had been possessed by a demon and now required an exorcism. Another friend of the Taylor family, Mr. John Eggins, drove the Taylors, complete with their children, to the vicarage that night. The kids were ushered upstairs to sleep while the adults dealt with the demonic situation that they found themselves in. Michael was taken by the men to the church vestry. He struggled the whole way and, in fact, had thrown his drink at Reverend Vincent when he was informed that he was to be exorcised. Christine was left in the house with the women, who would perform a similar ceremony on her. 
Michael was forced to lie down, sometimes being held in that position by one of the three other men present. At other points, he was tied down. The men took turns calling on demons possessing Michael Taylor to leave him. They demanded in tongues that the devils be cast out. Michael was doused in holy water, a strange thing, as it's not something usually associated with Anglicans or Methodists. At one point, a cross was put in his mouth, and his own cross that Taylor wore made of wood was burned in front of him. The three men worked all through the night, praying and demanding over the struggling Michael that the demons be cast out. Vincent claimed that that night they exorcised 40 demons from Taylor and cast out a number of spirits, including the spirits of bestiality, blasphemy, lewdness, and so on. The demons, the clergyman said, had named themselves using Mr. Taylor's voice. By 7am the following morning, the men were exhausted and could go on no longer. They needed to rest before they resumed the exorcism of the three remaining demons in Michael Taylor. They were the powerful demons of murder, violence, and insanity. Michael and Christine were then reunited, and Christine called John Eggins to take them all home. Reverend Vincent decided that Taylor was still possessed and volatile and possibly dangerous, and thought it best that authorities be told that a man with such evil within him was at large. He made a call to the local police and explained the exorcism to a very confused officer, who suggested that perhaps Michael Taylor should be brought to see a doctor. But Reverend Vincent assured him that all was in hand and that the only help that would be of any use to Michael was of a spiritual sort. Christine said she didn't want to see a doctor, she just wanted to get back to her own home to try and recover somehow. And so, at around eight o'clock on the 6th of October, Michael and Christine arrived back to their home. John Eggins took the boys to their grandparents' home to allow the exhausted parents get some rest before their ordeal was to continue later in the day. At around 10am that Sunday, on the 6th of October, a man was spotted running through Osset Town, stark naked, excepting his socks. He was also reported to be covered in paint. The local police were called in to handle the matter. According to author Mark Heal, given that this was a Sunday morning, it was initially suspected that the police were dealing with a streaker who had perhaps overindulged the night before. But when they spotted the man, now lying curled up in a ball on the footpath outside a pub, the responding officers realised that the man was in fact covered with blood and it didn't appear to be his. An ambulance was called all the same while Michael ranted and raved at the officers. They tried to get from him what had happened, where the blood had come from, and if he was hurt, but he was making no sense. The scene shattered the quietness of a Sunday morning in the small village, and people who lived nearby stopped their routines to see what was going on. Before Michael, Taylor was taken away in an ambulance, a local identified him to the responding police constable and told them where Michael lived. More officers called out to the house. Inside, they found an horrific scene. Christine Taylor was dead. She was barely recognisable as human. Such had been the ferocity of the attack against her. The house was a bloody mess. According to the book The Sussex Devils, 
seasoned officers vomited upon making the discovery. Christine's face had been torn at, and papers reported her eyes had been gouged and her tongue was removed from her mouth. Pathologists would later determine Christine had suffocated on her own blood. The family's pet dog had also been attacked and was virtually pulled apart. Detective Inspector Brian Smith spoke to Taylor after he was released from hospital into police custody. Michael told police that the exorcists had danced around him at the ritual the night before and burned his wooden cross because they said it was tainted with evil. Taylor said that all this effort was for naught, that the clergymen were too late, and that he was, quote, compelled by the forces within me to destroy everything within the house, end quote. Michael spoke quite freely to the police once he had calmed. He said that he loved his wife and that he had destroyed an evil within her. Michael explained to the police that he knew what he had done, but he had had no choice. Later he said that Christine was good and again that he loved her, but he had been compelled to kill her because evil had been put into her. Then he began muttering to himself. Michael Taylor was briefly brought to prison after being charged with the murder of Christine. He was seen by a psychologist who determined that he required extensive psychiatric care, and Michael Taylor was then brought to Broadmoor Mental Hospital for treatment. He began to make improvements, though he was still in a delicate condition by the time he appeared in Leeds Crown Court for his murder trial in March of 1975. This was a short procedure. Michael Taylor and his defence lawyers would be putting forward a defence to the charges that he had been insane at the time of the crime. According to a psychiatrist, Dr. Patrick McGrath, who gave evidence at the trial Michael Taylor had been brainwashed by his participation in the religious group. The Broadmoor doctor told the court that he had never seen anything like Michael's case, and though the term sounded more like pop psychology, it was the most accurate term to describe what had happened to him. Mr. Joffrey Baker, Queen's counsel, acting as a prosecutor in the case, told the jury that the evidence that they were about to hear would, quote, make it difficult to believe you were not back in the Middle Ages, end quote. The court was told that Michael Taylor said he had no recollection of what had happened leading up to Christine's death. The jury heard about the events of the night of the 5th of October and how Michael had been taken to the vestry by the ministers. They were told about how kneelers were placed on the floor for Michael to lie on, and Michael had been held down, apparently for his own protection. A window was opened to allow exercise spirits to leave the room. After each individual exorcism, Michael spoke with the priests, telling them that he was fine, free of his demons but the priests weren't convinced at any point that they had been successful in their exorcism. Judge and jury were told that this so-called ritual ended at about half six in the morning with the decision that Reverend Vincent and his Methodist counterpart needed time to rest. The clergy wanted someone to stay with Michael, and so Vincent had had his wife Sally try to contact their own family doctor, but she wasn't able to get through. The job of getting some sort of medical help was then deputised to another woman, who was told by the Vincents to ring the local medical officer in Wakefield and explain the circumstances. 
she was to arrange for doctors to meet the tailors in their own home. But the doctor she spoke to told this other woman to ring her own doctor. And so there would be no help waiting for Michael and Christine when they arrived back to their house. Christine's injuries were described, as well as Michael's physical and mental state in the immediate aftermath of the killing. In closing, Harry Ognall, Queen's counsel defending, said that his client had been mentally ill and that the so-called exorcism had caused and directly led to Michael's actions that night. Taylor had no memory of the events and was suffering from a severe defect of the mind. Ognall said that the treatment Michael had endured at the hands of the priests was, quote, a grotesque and wicked malpractice posing in the guise of religion, end quote. Unsurprisingly, Michael Taylor was found not guilty by reason of insanity and sent back to Broadmoor for further psychiatric treatment. After the trial, the press were predictably interested in the group that Taylor's madness had begun in. This was a trial involving not only an awful, gruesome murder, but also an exorcism. One of the leaders of the fellowship group spoke to the Observer newspaper a week after the trial. Mrs. Julie Gilby said that she thought that there was sexual tension between members of the group at times, but would name no names. She said the group was not some sort of fanatical sect, nor were they televangelists like in the US. All they did was meet to sing, worship, pray and read the Bible together. Mrs. Gibley said that Marie Robinson had left the fellowship, but again would not say whether the young preacher had been asked to leave or if she had stopped attending the prayer meetings in Osset voluntarily. Marie had returned to her family home in Doncaster after the trial and refused to speak to the press. Her father, however, told reporters that he and his whole family were devout Christians. The papers had been speculating about all sorts of things, and Mr. Robinson insisted that he and his family had nothing whatsoever to do with Satanism or demons or devils. They believed in the power of prayer. That was all. As for the ordained members of the fellowship following the trial, Reverend Vincent refused to make any comment to the press, bar warning them away from religious celebrations which were upcoming in his church. The week after the trial closed, a confirmation ceremony was held, which included one of Reverend Vincent's sons and was led by the Bishop of Wakefield. That bishop, Dr. Eric Tracy, announced to the press that he was considering holding an inquiry into the exorcism that had been held, and described it as unwise, though he was sure that Reverend Vincent and his colleagues had had good intentions, and that he understood that although not usual, some members of the clergy felt performing such rituals were a normal part of their ministry. Though a church rule dating back to 1608 meant that Reverend Vincent had technically broken church canon by not seeking permission of the bishop before conducting the rite. News broke that on the 3rd of April, Bishop Tracy banned exorcism in his diocese and decided that he would hold an inquiry into the practice and what had happened to Michael and Christine Taylor. He also announced the decision not to ask Reverend Vincent to resign, saying that he had, quote, 
always been a sincere and conscientious clergyman. In this particular matter, he was misguided, but I continue to have confidence in him. End quote. The Bishop of Wakefield also wrote in his diocesan newsletter, warning people of some of the dangers of charismatic groups, the kind that take part in speaking in tongues and so on. He said that believers might end up being led to things beyond their understanding. Dr. Tracy said he thought it necessary to take that moment to question the motives and practices of movements or groups that purported to have greater access to spirituality, the Holy Spirit, or secret sacred knowledge, though he said that these comments were not intended as a direct comment on the Taylor case. On the other hand, the bishop said he understood the drive to find something more, some greater meaning, and perhaps even something transcendent, in light of the spiritual barrenness found in many modern churches. The Most Reverend Dr. Tracy also took the opportunity while he was speaking in public to comment more directly on the Taylor case. He said that he had information that had not been heard at the trial. The bishop had been told that Michael Taylor was already extremely agitated by the time he arrived at the vicarage. According to Dr. Tracy, the visit to the vicar's house wasn't the thing that had set him off and induced the killing though the exorcism had, of course, exacerbated Taylor's mental state. On top of that, Reverend Vincent and his colleagues had made attempts to contact the police and doctors, but the authorities did not deem it necessary to take action at that time. Once the criminal proceedings were concluded, the inquest into Christine Taylor's death was reopened. On Monday, the 20th of April, the coroner, Dr. Philip Gill, began hearing evidence. Every person with any knowledge of what had occurred in the months leading up to Christine Taylor's death, the exorcism and her killing were called on to provide testimony. Marie Robinson was called back to the area from Doncaster to once more recount what had happened. She said that she felt that there was some sort of demonic energy in Michael. She described how Michael had kissed her after Christine told the two to sort things out. Marie was concerned with not wanting to hurt his pride, she said. And then after the incident, she was worried about upsetting Christine, too, who she considered a friend. Marie told the inquest that after Christine returned to the room that night, that she, quote, glanced at Mike and his whole features seemed to have changed. He looked almost bestial. He kept looking at me and there was a really wild look in his eyes. I started screaming at him out of fear. I did not know what to say. I started speaking in tongues, end quote. Michael had then started screaming at her in tongues too. The two screamed at each other, and Marie told the inquest how Michael started slapping her face. They tussled with one another and ended up on the far side of the room, and Christine struggled to get the two apart. Marie said, quote, I realised we were at the other side of the room with him crouching over me, ready to kill, end quote. Marie Robinson was questioned closely by both representatives of the Crown and lawyers hired by the clergy who had been involved in the exorcisms on the 5th of October the year before. Their concern was to shift blame away from the event immediately preceding Christine's death and show that there was a larger pattern over a longer period leading to the death. 
Miss Robinson explained that in the weeks before Mrs. Taylor was killed, particularly the night Christine confronted them, she thought that Michael was going to kill her and began repeating Jesus' name over and over again. She told the coronial court that she believed that that was the only thing that saved her from Michael in that moment. Marie went on to describe the awkwardness that existed between her and the Taylors. She knew that Michael seemed attracted to her, and she was afraid that he might make a move on her, not only because she didn't want to hurt him, but also because she didn't want to hurt Christine, with whom she was also friends. She told the coroner's court that these kind of advances were something she dealt with from the members of the fellowship, and explained that she never thought of herself as attractive. She said she always rejected any sort of advance by a man. In fact, she declared, quote, I hated being a girl. It seemed the boys had all the chances, and I did not think it was very fair, end quote. She didn't have many friends, and that was how she became so close to the Taylors so quickly. It appeared that the idea of advances were playing on Marie's mind when it came to the Taylors. There was an incident where she was worried about taking a lift home from Michael. This was how she usually got home after visiting the Taylors. She and Christine had sat praying together holding hands and all Marie could think of was how she was going to get out of the lift without hurting Michael's pride or upsetting Christine. Christine had sensed the discomfort and told Marie and Michael that she would leave the two of them alone to sort things out and that's when Michael had tried to kiss her. Under questioning from Reverend Vincent's legal representative, Marie admitted that she too had, at this time, a mild fixation with the moon. She had thought that it had had some sort of effect on her. During a certain phase of the moon, she would feel spiritually drained and weak, but she told the coroner's court that she had since been to see a doctor and had now realised that these were entirely normal feelings. She described them now as the natural rhythm of her body. Psychological evidence relating to Michael Taylor's mental state was also heard. At the inquest, psychiatrist Dr. Milner described how he had first met Mr. Taylor shortly after he ended up in police custody. Michael was at that point, quote, completely detached from reality, unaware of his surroundings and unfit to remain within prison custody, end quote. So, Michael Taylor was then transferred to Broadmoor Mental Hospital. Initially, Milna had suspected that Michael suffered from acute schizophrenia, but after spending more time with his patient, he was of the firm opinion that what had occurred was down to the influence of the fellowship meetings, and particularly Marie Robinson, who he described as a dominant person in Taylor's life. By the time of the inquest, Milna confirmed that Taylor was legally and clinically sane, though his patient was far from a full recovery. Reverend Vincent was also called to give evidence at the inquest and was asked about the events of the night. He described the rituals that had been performed by him and his colleagues on Michael. Vincent then admitted to Mr. Julian Hallam, a solicitor acting for the Taylor family, that Michael had been in a bad way when they sent him home. The Reverend thought that the unfortunate and obviously unstable man was still possessed by evil spirits. But more tellingly, Vincent admitted before the coroner, Philip Gill, that he thought that Michael was at that time dangerous and that Christine wasn't safe to be left alone with her husband at that point. 
His words described a man filled with the spirit of murder and that he believed strongly that Christine would likely be hurt if these spirits moved Michael. When the vicar was asked at the inquest whether he thought perhaps, given Michael Taylor's state of mind at the time, the better course of action was to seek medical help, particularly as Vincent thought that Michael was dangerous, the priest said, quote, I have had the opportunity of distinguishing between mental disturbance and spiritual possession, and I felt then, and still do, that spiritual ministry was required, end quote. In response to a query as to whether he was even in a position to be administering such metaphysical remedies, Reverend Vincent told the inquest that, rather than permission from the bishop, he had authority from the New Testament and Jesus Christ to conduct exorcisms. Evelyn Holland, Christine's mother, also spoke to the inquest hearing and said, that the family had never been religious and had certainly never had any interest or involvement in that sort of supernatural stuff before the fellowship meetings. In the end, after a three-day hearing, the coroner concluded that Christine's death was due to misadventure and that there was no criminal element to the act. He described four lessons to take away from the case. The first was that there were real dangers to exorcism. He said also that a medical element needed to be involved if clergy were going to perform such rituals, and they needed to be properly trained. He went on to further advise that people needed to be aware that there could be an element of danger of becoming overwhelmed when people are newly introduced to religious situations. Bishop Tracy accepted these findings and remained sceptical of such practices in any event. At Broadmoor, Taylor's behaviour was good. By the time of his trial, he was on what was called internal parole, meaning he had quite a bit of freedom in the hospital itself. His doctors considered that he had been in a trance or dissociated state after the exorcism and while he had committed the brutal attack. In the months he'd been hospitalised, his treatment had been effective and he was beginning to make a recovery from his breakdown. He and his wife made preparations for their son to return home to them after his release. Robert Taylor said that what his son had needed was medical treatment, not the religious mumbo-jumbo that had caused this mess, he said. They waited patiently for Michael to make a full recovery and to secure permission to be released from the institution, though there was no clear idea of how long that might be. In May 1976, just a year after the inquest into Christine Taylor's death concluded, the Reverend Peter Vincent was promoted from the position of priest in charge to vicar at St. Thomas's by Bishop Tracy. This promotion brought little change for Vincent from his daily obligations, but did bring security and permanence. Being made vicar meant that he could no longer be moved at will and would be staying at St. Thomas's for the foreseeable until if and when he made the decision to move. It was interpreted by many as support of Reverend Vincent by the Bishop of Wakefield, despite their differing views related to the arcane. After two years in Broadmoor, Michael Taylor was moved to Bradford Royal Infirmary to continue his treatment. He stayed there for another two years before he was released and moved back home to his parents. He attempted to pick up the pieces of his life, but the events of autumn 1974 would never really leave him. 
Michael was reported to have talked of suicide and to have suffered from bouts of depression after his release. Through the next 30 years, he survived four suicide attempts, which resulted in hospitalization from both slashing his wrists and once even jumping from a bridge. But much of Michael Taylor's life continued quietly for those years. Until in July 2015, Michael Taylor was back before the courts, accused twice of indecently touching a teenaged girl. He was held in prison for a week where his psychiatric condition worsened drastically. Because of this, he was released on bail and his mental state improved. By the time these charges came before the court once more, it was also determined by the judge in the matter that the details of the previous court case for the murder of his wife had no bearing on the new charges. In any event, Michael Taylor had decided to enter a guilty plea. Because of his otherwise clean record and his assessment as a low to medium risk of reoffending, Michael Taylor was given three years of community service and released on condition that Michael receive further treatment for his psychiatric problems. The murder of Christine Taylor was horrific and nearly entirely lost in the media reporting which pitted charismatic Christianity against modern psychological treatments. One letter writer to the Guardian suggested that perhaps priests and others who were expert in things of a spiritual nature could be included in the treatment of people with mental disorders who could not be cured by traditional doctors. Those who could not be treated medically were perhaps suffering from a spiritual ailment. The obscure story set in a small northern town became part of a larger narrative where, in the face of uncertain times, people immersed themselves in religion. And so, the Osset murder case took its place at the very beginning of a preoccupation with Satanism, and with it a moral panic that would last for decades. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Or better yet, honestly, just tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Barry Cotter, Sonia O'Brien, Laura Law, Carmel O'Dwyer, and a big thank you to Cindy Ortiz, who has upped her pledge. Your support means the absolute world to me, and I appreciate it so much. Patrons get ad-free and early release episodes, as well as bonus content up to twice a month, and nifty merch. I hope you'll check it out. Also, a huge thank you to this week's sponsor, HelloFresh. Remember to head to hellofresh.co.uk and enter the code MENSREA at checkout to get £60 off. Supporting our sponsors also supports this show and keeps the episodes coming, so if you want to help me out and feed yourself delicious homemade dinners, go get yourself a sweet discount. Our theme music is Quinn's Song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do.
everyone. My name's Sean. And I'm Chloe. Join us on our show, True Blue True Crime, as we discuss a range of Australian criminal cases. Solved, unsolved, notorious and obscure. Each week we deep dive into the backgrounds of perpetrators, details of crimes, impact on victims and effects on the community. If it's high seas drug smuggling you're seeking, check out the Pong Su incident, a genuine outback mystery Try to figure out what happened to Raymond and Jenny Callett. Or after the heart-wrenching tale of the Crawford family, you could listen to Sean take a few swipes at our least favourite perp, Ashley Coulston. He's a peach, that guy. Whatever your true crime itch, I'm sure we'll give it a scratch on True Blue. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you all next time. Bye. Bye.